0: Thank you, sir. Good morning, everyone. I want to welcome you and invite you, if you have a Bible, to turn to the Gospel of John chapter 18. If you don't have a Bible, we have plenty of extras. Just raise your hand. just want to call your attention to a couple of things. This week, we have our Good Friday service. We're calling it the Tenebrae service, which I think you'll find very interesting, which means darkness. That's going to be at 7 o'clock Friday night, and then on Sunday morning, Easter Sunday, because of the amount of people we've been having, we're having three services again. So the first one's at 8, then 9.30 and 11. So one of the things I wanted to ask is, um, well, actually, this group shouldn't be a problem. We have so many people come to 9.30 that we're trying to spread it out. So um, just note on the the current, the the handout, the child care and so forth. Just a few other things. Remember, the Northern Ireland team needs prayer, and if you're interested in supporting Pay attention, the forge is moving to Thursday nights, the women's breakfast is coming up, and then there's a golf outing. So if there's anything you want us to pray for, feel free to fill out a card and let us know how we can help you. But we're studying the gospel of John, and this week we're beginning what Christians have been calling for many years Passion Week. It's the last week in the life of Jesus. And very interestingly, when you read the story of Jesus in the four gospels, the Passion Week by far, hands down, takes up most of the space. In fact, some of the Gospels, like Mark, spend almost a third of his book talking about one week in the life of Jesus. So it it reminds us to think, wow, this is an important part of what it means to be a Christian, to know the story of the Passion Week and to understand the implications of it. So in order to do that, we have to back up, and I just want to briefly overview the life of Christ Then we'll talk about the Passion Week. Then we'll look at our passage this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. It's alive. It's powerful. It's so wonderful that we're able to read the word and know the truth and see Jesus lifted up, and then we can respond in faith and obedience and worship. And thank you for the power of the Spirit as we meet together in Jesus' name. Thank you for how cool it is to see how many children Their lives are being changed. They're growing and partnering together with parents and grandparents and family and friends. We want to raise up the next generation. We pray for all of our children's workers. We pray for Kim and Janet and all of the leaders as they minister to our kids. May we learn and grow and realize what a terrific privilege parenting and grandparenting is. And we pray for your divine enablement that we might see boys and girls who love the Lord and are raised up to follow Christ. Bless your word now and speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's start with talking about the life of Jesus. Just briefly, first of all, Jesus was born in 4 BC. He missed his birthday by four years. And the reason we think that's the case is because Herod the Great, it's pretty historically concluded that he died around 4 BC. The whole BC thing and all came later. So the bigger issue is just to say Jesus... Was born in Bethlehem, born of a virgin, as it was predicted in scriptures. But there's not a whole lot of significance in the, in the upbringing of Christ that's brought out in the Gospels. It's not till he turns 30 that's when the, the action begins. Now, that's not to downplay his life, but when he turns 30, that's when the ball really gets rolling because suddenly he's baptized, the Holy Spirit comes upon him, he's tempted by Satan. And then he begins to do these profound miracles. He's raising the dead. He's feeding 5,000, walking on water, healing people. And he's going around preaching a message about a kingdom and how he is a king and he's calling people to repent and believe in him. But early on in the story, he predicts over and over again that his goal here is to go up to the cross and die. And so all of the gospel stories are like like a river that's flowing into sort of a, a siphoning tunnel where it powerfully takes us into Passion Week. So at about the three-and-a-half-year point of the life of Jesus, he begins to head to Jerusalem. Now, as you're learning to read and study your Bible, get out a study Bible and look at the map of the Holy Land and see where the Sea of Galilee is, see where Jerusalem is down by the Dead Sea, and, and note that Jesus toggles back and forth. It's about a 60-mile walk. But a lot of his ministry does up in Galilee, but at the end of his ministry of training these disciples and doing miracles he heads down to Jerusalem for passion week and so as you read the four gospels remember Matthew Mark Luke and John were each inspired by God to tell a particular story about the life of Christ they don't contradict each other they complement one another and so we learn from the gospel writers that sunday was called we call it palm sunday the triumphal entry that's that's the beginning of passion week when Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey fulfilling Zechariah chapter nine, which says, behold, your king comes on a donkey. And the people, having heard about Jesus and his kingship, were very excited. Hosanna, blessed is the king. And they anticipated that as Jesus entered in Jerusalem that he would establish his kingdom right then, that he would overthrow the Romans and he would begin to reign. But what they failed to realize is that the Old Testament predicted he would suffer and that his earthly kingdom would be postponed at that time. And so, as that Sunday passes monday morning comes around he comes into the temple and he's got some house cleaning to do an extreme makeover he turns over the tables he says don't make my father's house a den of thieves and then on tuesday of that passion week the bible tells us that the disciples in matthew 24:25 said hey look at look at this this temple that Herod built and jesus goes not one of these stones will be left upon another and they said well tell us then about the signs of your coming in the end of the age and Jesus taught the Olivet Discourse about his return. Wednesday, we don't know much of what happened other than that he was teaching, but Thursday is when things really ramp up because it's on Thursday evening that Jesus begins to prepare to eat the Passover. So we know that he goes into the upper room for what we call the Last Supper, where he establishes that the new covenant will be built around his death and his shed blood But as we've been studying the Gospel of John, that's where we've been. In chapters 13 through 17, we have this upper room discourse where Jesus does extensive teaching, preparing his disciples that he's leaving, and he's sending them and commissioning them in the power of the Spirit. But once he finished that teaching in the upper room, we learn that he leaves the upper room, and he begins to walk out of the city, outside the city wall. And, And we've read John 17. We saw this prayer that Jesus prayed for our unification, for his glorification, for our sanctification. But then Jesus goes down across what's called the Kidron Valley, and he goes out into a little area of olive trees, a grove called Gethsemane, which in Hebrew means oil press. And it looks like it was just a little walled olive grove that someone owned, but allowed Jesus and his disciples to use that. And it was there as he enters into that garden that He begins to pray these agonizing prayers. Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. But all along knowing that at any moment, Jesus is going to be arrested. And so somewhere in the middle of the night, a great multitude of soldiers show up and they arrest Jesus. And we're going to read about that this morning in the Gospel of John. But as he's arrested, Jesus never sleeps that night because he bounces around like a pinball to six different trials. First, he's brought to the home of Annas, the father-in-law, of the high priest. Then he's shuffled off to the home of Caiaphas, who is the high priest. And then they scuttle him over to a meeting with the Sanhedrin. This is all in the middle of the night. As morning begins to roll around, they send him to the palace of Pilate, where Pilate examines him. And, And then Pilate takes him, and he sends him to be examined by King Herod. And Herod can't find any fault in him, and he sends him back to Pilate, and Pilate brings him out and wants to, wants to liberate him, and the Jews yell, crucify him, and then at nine o'clock Friday morning, they hang him up on that cross, and for the next six hours that Friday, Jesus utters seven statements, the middle one being, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me, and, and the earth becomes dark, and we'll celebrate that six hours that Friday, this Friday night. And as we, as Christians understand that there's so much more that was going on in the cross than poor Jesus, the guy got a bad deal, but understanding that he was paying for our sins, that he was absorbing the wrath of God, that when he was done, he said, it's finished. The Lamb of God paid for my sins so that I could be forgiven. And then, of course, we roll around to Sunday morning of Easter and we celebrate his resurrection. So be praying This week that God's spirit will move in many hearts as we reflect on the death and resurrection of Jesus. But this morning, we're in John chapter 18, and we're going to look at several events. First of all, the arrest of Jesus, the examination before Annas, the denial of Peter, and then ultimately Jesus' appearance before Pilate for the first trial. So let's begin in verses 1 through 14, where we'll see the arrest of Jesus, and One of the things I want you to note here is the absolute control that Jesus has. He's orchestrating his own arrest. He's not avoiding it, nor is he succumbing to it. He's actually in control of it. So let's begin in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, this this little dry wadi that filled with water in the rainy season. And then he comes up to a garden in which he himself entered and his disciples. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. And I think John puts that there for this reason. If Jesus was trying not to be arrested, just a little while ago, he had dismissed Judas saying, Go and do it quickly. So he knew Judas was about to go and betray him. If he didn't want to get arrested, the last thing he would do is go to his normal hangout. But John's indicating that both Judas knew it, but suddenly there were understanding that so did Jesus. And he went there intentionally, not to avoid arrest, but to allow himself to be arrested. Then we read in verse 3, Judas then having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. And this is why we're encouraging you to, to learn how to read the Bible for yourself. When you read terms like cohort, you say, what is a cohort in verse three? Well, look it up, have a Bible dictionary or, or type in and Google, what is a Roman cohort? A cohort was up to a thousand soldiers, a thousand. And, and then the title for the, the leader of this cohort is a is a a, a ruler of a thousand. And so imagine this room holds about 600 people, maybe a little more than 500. It's possible that there were anywhere from 200 to 600 foot soldiers. Usually a a whole cohort included a cavalry of 200. So unlikely there were any horses there. but, But we're not talking about two or three guys, Moe, Larry, and Curly, there to arrest Jesus with a pair of handcuffs and Barney Fife. We're talking about a disciplined army of Roman soldiers who were in Jerusalem because they always beefed up security during the Passover week because millions of Jews were there. And so apparently behind the scenes, the political leaders and the Jewish leaders met together and they asked Pilate to send some police. So imagine the the, the, the trail of of lanterns and lights that that are lining their way, coming and surrounding the Garden of Gethsemane. And we think that perhaps the garden had a little wall around it because the Bible says Jesus went forth. But notice now this great band of people are there to arrest Jesus. Verse three says, Judas received the cohort and officers and they came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. But notice how John comments. He didn't say, so Jesus just went out there. He said, so Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, it's really important that we, that we stop and think about that, that. That Jesus, because he's God, nothing took him by surprise. Nothing, nothing suddenly caused him to, to fall into a tailspin like what just happened? He knew exactly what was coming upon him. And knowing that, and we'll read that over and over again in John, in John 13 it says, knowing that his hour had come, he rose up and washed the disciples' feet in perfect control. In wonderful, sovereign love, Jesus voluntarily delivers himself over to be arrested. And when you think it through, it's actually because he was gonna die for you and me. That the Bible says, for the joy set before him, he was willing to enjoy the cross. So he, so he went forth. He didn't, he didn't hide and say, guys, let's sneak out the back. Somebody cover me. He goes right out and he says, who, who are you looking for? Whom do you seek? Notice Jesus Perfect grammar and diction. If he was from South Philly, he goes, you're talking to me? But now, whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus, the Nazarene. And again, with, with well-done grammar, he says, I am he. Now, that's a really interesting phrase. In, in the New Testament, that, that's just two words in Greek, ego and me. And it has a rich history in the Greek Old Testament because that's the equivalent of the Old Testament name Yahweh, the, the name of God that God revealed to Moses in Exodus when he said, I am. Tell him, I am. Jesus had said this earlier in the Gospel of John when they said, you're not older than Abraham, and he said, before Abraham was, ego, a me, I am. And so here, I'm not sure they understood it, but Christ, I think, was just doing more than saying, It's me, but I think he's reminding us that I am God, that I am Yahweh, that I am Jehovah. In fact, a Jehovah's Witness came to my door yesterday and she was surprised when I said, I'm a Jehovah's Witness too. I believe Jesus is Jehovah. And then it went downhill from there. (laughs) Judas also who was betraying him was standing there Now notice this. So when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Imagine if right now Jesus Christ appeared and he said, I am he. And everybody in this room was knocked out of their chair and laying on the ground. I would imagine that most of us would get up running and screaming for cover out of terror. I can only imagine as swords and shields are flying all over and people are climbing all over and clamoring to get back up that you think to yourself what just happened is there a sane man in the crowd is there anybody that would stop and go wow this guy's powerful we might be in over our heads fellas let's get out while we can but what we find throughout the scriptures is both the insanity and hardenedness of sin Could they not have figured out the authority and power of Jesus? Did they not understand that the entire scriptures speak of the power of the words of the Lord, that that he spoke creation into being, that the Bible says one day he will slay men with the breath of his mouth, the words that come from him are powerful enough to destroy us? But sin is deceitful, and they just dusted off their stuff and had at it again. Verse 7, therefore he again asked them, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus, the Nazarene. Now, thankfully, in his mercy, Jesus didn't say, well, we can keep doing this until you get it right. But he said, I told you that I am he. But then again, showing his control, usually the guy who's being arrested does not dictate the circumstances. He doesn't say, no, I don't, I don't want to do the handcuffs and um, I'll meet you at the police station. And let's, no, but notice him dictating his own arrest. So if you seek me, let these go their way, the 11. Well, why was Jesus so concerned about the 11? To fulfill the word which he spoke. Again, showing the sovereignty, the authority of Jesus. He's got this. Well, what was that word that he spoke? Of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. And if you haven't been tracking in the gospel of John, go back and read John and and note how often that phrase is used, of those whom you have given me, I lost none. What a wonderful reminder, if you're a Christian this morning, that you are safe and secure in the authority and the power and the grace and the keeping of the Lord Jesus. The Bible tells us that everyone he predestined and called, he justified and he glorified. He that began a good work in us will Perform it until the day of Christ. I'm so grateful that Christ holds on to me. Now that doesn't and ought not lead you to be careless and say, hey, whatever, I'm saved, I can do whatever I want. But it's not about a a relay race where you do your part and Jesus does his. Salvation and sanctification and glorification is a work of Christ. Now, if you're visiting with us or you're still exploring this, you ought to be more worried about this. Am I one of the ones that God has given me? Am I one of the ones that God has, has saved through grace? And I tell you this much, if you want to be saved, Jesus said, all who come to me, none of them I will cast out. Run to Jesus and say, Lord, I want to be a follower. I want to be forgiven. And then as you believe and call on the name of the Lord, know that you are one of his own and he'll keep you. And so poor Simon Peter, who we often throw under the bus as the coward who denied Christ, we need to be reminded that He wasn't quite the coward we might have always thought he was because verse 10 says, Simon Peter having a sword drew it and he struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear, and the slave's name was Malchus. Now do you think that Peter with one sword and 600 men had any sense that he was going to take them all down? It was almost like a suicide mission. It was as though Peter was saying, Somebody's going down with me, but I'm protecting my Lord. So Jesus said to Peter, put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? When Jesus talks about the cup, the Bible portrays his sufferings as a cup that God had poured out for him to drink, a bitter cup. A cup of God's wrath in which Jesus would drink it to the full. And anytime we try to add to the work of Christ, Jesus doesn't care for others drinking from his cup. Well, it might be well-meaning, you may have gone to a church where you were taught that somehow your good deeds and, and being a good person will, will help in your salvation, that your performance and your efforts will somehow contribute to you getting into heaven and then at the end of the day you're still going to have to to do some time in purgatory where where you'll you'll be punished for a while for your sins do you see how that takes away from the glory of the lamb do you see how that discredits the gospel jesus alone drank the cup of god's wrath and so i remind you that when he hung on the cross he said it is finished there's nothing we contribute but we rest and we receive the grace of God in this once for all perfect sacrifice of Christ. So the Roman cohort and the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Do you see the irony there? They bound him. Jesus puts out his hands and they tie him up. The same one who who spoke a word and knocked 600 people over allows them to arrest him. He's not kicking and screaming, leave me alone. And they led him to Annas first. And and as we consider him walking along with those bound hands, I'm reminded of that great hymn, He Could Have Called 10,000 Angels. They bound the hands of Jesus in the garden where he prayed. And they led him through the streets in shame. They mocked and spat upon him so pure and free from sin. They said, crucify him, he's to blame. He could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world. And set him free. He could have called 10,000 angels. But he died alone. For you and me. And so they lead him to the home of Annas. And this is the first of his six trials. Annas was the father-in-law of Caiaphas. Annas was the high priest up till about 17 AD. But the Romans deposed him and allowed his son-in-law, Caiaphas, to eventually become the high priest. But as is often the case the guy who's technically in charge and the guy who's on paper in charge, there's a a fudging there. And so it was understood that Annas had a lot of influence. So they start with Annas, even though he's not technically the high priest, it's Caiaphas. Now notice John wants to remind us that Caiaphas was the one who advised the Jews that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. Remember earlier in John when Caiaphas spoke better than he knew when he predicted that Christ would die for his people. Now Peter comes in. Simon Peter was following Jesus, and so was another disciple, and that disciple was known to the high priest. And he entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. Now, just briefly, that's an interesting thought. The high priest was very wealthy. The Sadducees were incredibly wealthy. They had opulent places within the city with tons of money, and, and they didn't just hang around with common people, so much so that, that John Calvin, as he commented on this, he said, this disciple can't be John the Apostle because why would the high priest have anything to do with some fisherman? That it must have been some wealthy disciple of Jesus who, who was in and out of the high priest's luxurious palace. He knew someone who knew someone. But I have no problem with thinking that John, as is his custom in the gospel, is talking about himself here. And so let's assume then that John, who knows the high priest, and gets inside the courtyard where Annas lives, knows that Peter's still out in the gate. And so we read in verse 16, but Peter was standing at the door outside, so the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the doorkeeper, and he said, hey, see that that guy over there? That's my buddy, can he come in? Sure, bring him in. So Peter comes in. Then the slave girl who kept the door said to Peter, you're, you're not one of those, you're not one of his disciples, are you? And Peter says, I'm not. I want you to imagine and think with me for a moment. What, what went through Peter's mind right after he blurted that out? In that miscalculated moment of fear. No, 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 I'm not. Okay? Mind you, it wasn't that long ago, just hours earlier, Jesus said, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. Strike one. And one of the things that strikes me about that is that, like many sins, unchecked when we violate our conscience, things continue to spiral more deeply and desperately. Because we learn by the third denial of Peter that he began to curse and swear. And it's a sober warning to all of us that people aren't one day walking close with Jesus and the next day cursing Jesus. That oftentimes it's very subtle. We compromise our conscience. We begin to let other things occupy our time. We neglect our time with Christ in the word and prayer. And before we know it, Not keeping a good conscience, we allow ourselves to spiral into things that we could have never imagined that we would do. And it's a great warning to all of us to realize the deceitfulness of sin and how we need to speak into one another's lives. We need to keep short accounts with Christ, confessing our sins. We need to watch over our heart and pray for one another. Because I think Peter was very well-meaning when he said to Jesus, I would never deny you. But the place that he failed was Jesus said, I know you're willing, but you need to pray. You need to watch and pray. And because he failed to do that, he's beginning to to end him, or to begin that slippery slope of, of danger and damage to his own soul. Now the slaves and the officers were standing there having made a fire for it was cold and they were warming themselves and Peter was with them standing and warming himself. Meanwhile, Back in Annas' house, the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. So he says, I got two things I want to know from you, buddy. Tell me about your disciples. Now here he didn't want to, I don't think he wanted a list of the the 11 guys. I think he wanted to know, how much influence do you have here? Where are you in the polls? Do you have 40%? You know, there's a lot of people that are talking about you. And I think he's calculating the risks and the dangers and trying to figure out just how much influence do you have. But then he says, tell me about your teaching. What's your game? What makes you tick? And, of course, we read the Gospels. We know that Jesus stayed with the message. Repent. Believe. I'm here. I'm the king. I'm coming. Follow me, and you'll be forgiven. Follow me and you will inherit the kingdom of God. But unless you come to me, you'll perish. And he taught it in the highways and the byways. He taught it one-on-one. He taught it to to the crowds. And so Jesus says in verse 20, I've spoken openly to the world. I always taught in the synagogues and the temples where all the Jews come together. I didn't speak anything in secret. Why do you question me? I don't think Jesus was being a smart aleck here. Question those who heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said. When he says I spoke nothing in secret, it's an interesting challenge that some have put forth. Well, then why did Jesus say to his disciples what I told you in secret, announced from the the rooftop? I don't think Jesus meant that he never spoke quietly to his disciples, but the heart and soul of what he taught was well known to everybody. In fact, an interesting example of that is where in the world did the thief on the cross get his information when suddenly he looks at Jesus and says, Lord, remember me when you come in your kingdom? He didn't just suddenly figure that out. He had heard that. The teaching of Jesus had spread throughout the Holy Land. And so Jesus says, what do you want? why do you want to know what I teach? Everybody, ask anybody. I haven't changed my message. And then this guy really gets on my nerves, verse 22. When he had said this, one of the officers standing nearby struck Jesus. The Greek word here, rapisma, from which we get the word, I'm going to rap you. It's a backslap. He backhands Jesus. And he says, Is that the way you answer the high priest? Now, you remember in the book of Acts that Paul severely rebuked the high priest and called him a, a whitewashed sepulcher. And, and he got a backhand for it. But he realized he was wrong because he spoke evil. Against high priests. Jesus didn't speak any evil. Look at verse 23. Jesus said, If I have spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? Is that how you think you and I would respond if somebody backslapped us? Again, we see the restraint, the authority, the love of Christ, the example of Christ. 1 Peter chapter 2 says, He left us an example to follow who, when He was When he was railed, he did not rail in return. But he simply said, why do you strike me? No one could ever find fault with Christ. He said, which of you can accuse me of any sin? So Annas, realizing that he's getting nowhere, sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now, the Gospel of John does not record what happened when he got to Caiaphas' house. But we read in Matthew and the other Gospels that Caiaphas examined him and said, are you the Messiah? And Jesus says, I am, and you will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds. And Caiaphas rips his robe and he says, blasphemy, let's kill him. And so they take him off to the Sanhedrin. But John wants to take us back to Peter. Now, Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. And as one commentary said, perhaps the light of the fire flickered brightly for a moment and Peter's face became as clear as day, and one of them said, hey, aren't you, aren't you one of his disciples? And he denied it, and he said, I'm not. And then one of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of the one whose ear Peter cut off, said, didn't I see you in the garden with him? He was there that day, and remember we learned from the other gospels that Jesus gently reached down, and he picked up Malchus's ear, and he said, here's your earbud. And i He healed him, and the relative says, I know it was you. Peter then denied it again. Now here, there's two things I want to remind you. When that rooster crowed, there's two things that John doesn't tell us. One is that Peter, by this point, was swearing and cursing with an oath. Who would have ever imagined that he could have spiraled that far from Christ? But the other thing that... Is striking that the gospel's at is that Peter went out and wept bitterly. Now, Jesus, in his compassion, as he always does, he seeks out his own, and we know from the gospel of John that he forgave Peter, that he restored him, that he reassured him, Peter, I still love you. I still have a mission for you. You're going to go and feed my sheep. But this decision that Peter had made, this failure on on Peter's part, pardon me, on Peter's Heart, rocked him for a lifetime, because think about this, for the rest of his life, I don't know that he ever fully recovered, so to speak, from, from the pain and the baggage of his denial of Christ. Now, God is so gracious, he uses our failures, and he works them together for good, and he, and he causes all things to work together for good, but the point I want to make here is that It's always a bad idea to sacrifice the permanent on the altar of the immediate. And decisions that we make in our marriage or in our morals, though God forgives them, they can have long-lasting implications. And so the idea here is to, I can't go back and I don't want to dwell on my past, but as I move forward, I want to proceed with faith and prayer. Oh God, keep me from doing these type of things, that though you'll forgive them, that I'll have to reap what I sow. But as I said, God is so full of mercy, isn't he? He's so full of grace. Don't live in the rearview mirror of your failures. Think of Jesus saying, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Think of Jonah. The word of the Lord came the second time to Jonah. Read on and learn that God used Peter greatly. But we can learn from him and pray for one another. God, help me lead me not into temptation help me to learn the lesson from the life of peter so i don't continue to make the same mistakes pray for me and my family and for our leaders and for your kids and your spouses let's pray that god keeps us and that we learn from jesus as we learned in john 17 continually pray god deliver us from evil well now it's time to to go see pilate verse 28 then they led jesus from caiaphas into the praetorium. Now again, you would want to look that up in a Bible dictionary. What's a praetorium? That was the the palace of the the Roman authorities. There wasn't just one praetorium. There are a number of them. But notice that these religious leaders did not enter into the praetorium. Why not? They didn't want to be defiled so that they could eat the Passover. Now there's a little bit of background here that's helpful to think about. While God had never said this, the Jews, in their zeal to keep themselves pure, had made a law that you cannot go into the home of a Gentile because if you went into the home of a Gentile, you would become unclean. You would be contaminated by being around these dirty animals. Now again, that, that was not a, a commandment from God. This was part of the Jewish Mishnah. And this is what sort of framed the Apostle Peter in Acts chapter 10 when he came to the home of, of Cornelius. He says, you know, normally I wouldn't come in here because it's unlawful for Jews to eat with Gentiles. And One of the reasons uh, that perhaps they did that, a commentary I read said that Romans sometimes aborted their children and buried them in their homes. And as a result of that, the Jews knew that it was ceremonially defiling to be around a dead corpse or touch a corpse. So, so they couldn't go inside. Now, do you see the irony in all this? That they're worried about their religiousness in the midst of severe unrighteousness, right? They're trying to put innocent Jesus to death out of their own wicked and godless jealousy and selfish purposes. But in all of this, they're practicing their religion how sad it is that so many people in American culture, the Bible tells us they hold to a form of godliness. Oh sure, we show up, we make our confessions or whatever, but they deny its power. The irony of their deep hypocrisy to be straining at a gnat while swallowing a camel. It's a great reminder that what matters most to God is what's going on inside of our heart before we worry about jotting all of our our, our, our T's and I's and and worrying about what's far less significant in the grand scheme. And so therefore, Pilate went out to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered him said, if he weren't an evildoer, we wouldn't have brought him here. And Pilate said, well, then take him yourselves and judge him. You have laws? We have allowed you Jews to have your own Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin? And the Jews said, well, we're not permitted to put anyone to death. Now there's a lot of discussion about that because in the book of Acts chapter 7 we read that the Jews stoned Stephen to death they didn't seem to get any political permission from the Romans. They just killed him. But my suggestion would be that that was totally illegal. It was just a mob scene that happened. But according to Roman law, Jews were not allowed to execute someone. They had to receive permission from the Romans. And part of the way that they carried out capital punishment was very different. Jews stoned people with large stones. They put them down on his knees and and stoned him to death. Romans, when it was a non-Roman citizen, crucified as their form of capital punishment. But again, we see the control and the authority and the plan of God in all of this. Because the reason why the Jews weren't able to stone him was to fulfill the word of which Jesus spoke, signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. Jesus had said, I'm going to be lifted up. Jesus planned to be crucified. And there's a great, marvelous mystery in the crucifixion of Christ because everyone wants to know whose fault was it? Was it the Romans? Was it the Jews? Was it Satan? Was it us? But behind all of that is the sovereign, almighty, loving God who sent his son. And Acts chapter 2 says that Jesus was delivered up to the cross by the foreknowledge and predetermined plan of God. Isn't that striking? That God orchestrated and planned for the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, This does not take away from human responsibility. This does not mean that we're all robots programmed and that Judas can stand before God and say, hey, it wasn't my fault. You made me do it. Satan can't stand before God and say, it's not my fault. I'm just a pawn and you use me. God somehow orchestrates his perfect plan of Calvary and yet he allows the individual choices of his creatures and he holds them responsible. Which fast forward to today... If you don't make it to heaven, it's not because God didn't pick you. It's because you refused to repent and believe the gospel. No one will stand before God and say, hey, how could I resist your will? I wasn't chosen. The Bible says the books will be open and men will be judged for their deeds. And so you have a choice to make. And that choice is to believe and surrender to Christ. And if you've never done that, do it while you can. He loves you. He calls you. And if you have, thank God for his sovereign grace in calling you to himself. Therefore, Pilate again entered the praetorium, and he summoned Jesus, and he said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Now, isn't it interesting that this morning we've been thinking about the theme of Christ, the king, like a diamond. Everywhere you turn, Jesus, is a different facet of beauty and light shines out. And as we think about the kingship of Christ, Pilate says, Are you the king? Notice how Jesus puts Pilate on trial. Verse 34, you saying this on your own initiative? Or did others tell you this? Why did Jesus say that? Pilate answers, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priest delivered you to me. What did you do? When we come to chapter 19, Pilate's going to say, don't you know I have a Authority to crucify you, and Jesus says, You don't have any authority unless God gave it to you. Remarkable, isn't Jesus? Look at Jesus answered. My kingdom is not of this world. Wait, what? Imagine what Paul said, wait, wait, what do you mean your kingdom's not of this world? I'm the king here. We got kings there. We got an emperor. What are you talking about? Jesus is saying, my kingdom is otherworldly. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting. You would be seeing thousands of angels down here. I wouldn't be standing here right now. And bloody bodies would be laying everywhere. But my kingdom is not of this realm. So Pilate says, so you are a king. And Jesus says, you said that correctly. Correctly. That's why I was born. I've come into the world to testify to the truth. And the truth of the matter is Jesus is Lord of all. And while his kingdom is not of this world today, it's coming. And the Bible says one day the kingdoms of this world will be the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And right now the kingdom of God is is beginning to be in operation as Jesus Christ brings people to himself, if you're a Christian, you've become part of his kingdom. But his kingdom itself has not come. That's why we're here on earth, to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, to advance the cause of his kingdom, to build his church, to live for Christ, to love our neighbor, to love our enemy, and to pray for the return of Christ as we make disciples. But notice Jesus says, everyone who's of the truth Here's my voice. I wonder if he's not offering out to Pilate an invitation to say, what do you think, Pilate? Do you believe me? This morning I ask you as I preach from this book, is this the truth? Do you believe this is the truth? God help me, so help me God, come hell or high water, I don't care what Method mom and dad or anybody else says, if the Bible says it, I believe it. Jesus is Lord. He's the way. I'm not worried about being politically correct. I'm wanting to be submitted to Christ. What a joy it is to have this Bible. We don't need to be proud to have the truth. We need to praise Jesus that he has revealed to us the truth. And so Benjamin's going to come and we're going to sing a closing song, but I want to just point out a couple things as we go home this week. Certainly I want to urge you to be meditating and reading and thinking about the coming passion of Christ that we'll worship and celebrate Friday night. Think about, first of all, the power of Christ's words and his control. If that same Jesus can knock down 600 people with a, with a word, can he not take care of me? Can he not provide for me? Can he not protect me? Has, has he been able to orchestrate all of the events of his life, but he can't orchestrate mine? Why am I going through all of this mess? Has he failed to keep his promise that all things work together for good to those who love God? As Barabbas was released and Barabbas sees Christ hanging on the cross and they say to Barabbas, who was that? And he says, I don't know, but that should have been me. Isn't that true of us? that Christ loved us and gave himself for us. His kingdom is coming. And I want to close with something that I read in one commentary. He said, there was a seventh and final trial of Jesus. And I'm like, what? And he says, yeah, it takes place in your heart. As you and I hear the words of Jesus, and we read this story, and Jesus is on trial. What's your verdict? You mustn't remain neutral. If you're not for him, you're against him. Do you believe that he died for you? That he will forgive you as you repent of your sin and entrust yourself to him? If you failed like Peter, are you ready to follow him again?